All right, everyone. Good evening. Sorry to be running in here last minute. We are beginning our... I did that last week. <laughs> it's the same one. Thanks for that, for taking care of me here. Yeah, that'll work. Then I'm going to pull this top part off, too. So There you go. We'll see that. That helps out. Uh, what I was going to say is we're beginning the, the time to prepare the, the budget for 2020. So we've got meetings going on before and after, and I'm running here a little bit late. But thankful for the chance to be with you. Hopefully you picked up one of these packets that's on the back table. If not, you can grab that. We'll, we've got a lot of material we're going to look through uh, throughout the night. But, yeah, if you didn't get one, go ahead and grab one of those for sure. Um, before we do that, we want to spend time uh, praying together and, and celebrating God's work in, in our church and things that are going on. I want you to know that this Friday at 1 o'clock, we're having the funeral service for Marsha Bradshaw. Not everyone I know had a chance to get to know Marsha. Marsha was Natalie Hilburn's mother, and Marsha passed away this last week, and so we're going to have the service for Marsha here at 1 o'clock on Friday. So I want you to know about that for those of you who, who knew her. Also, Miss Betty Baker, she is in the hospital at Mercy. She had hip surgery this afternoon. She fell and broke her hip, and so she had surgery about 5 o'clock, uh, Betty did, and so I haven't heard. Um, Carl, I guess you haven't heard him. Yeah. Carl went to see her yesterday, and she was in good spirits and doing, uh, doing well considering this. What was her wording, Carl, about the whole situation? Or? I've done it before, and I'll do it again, so... Uh, <laughs> That's, that's the spirit when you break your hip. I've done it before, and I'll do it again. So uh, been through this. So, What's that? Oh, they're going to do an actual hip replacement. All right, there you go. Hopefully she won't do it again. So, uh, no, Betty, Betty's great. She's really witty and obviously proud of her grandson who attends Emmaus on Sunday morning and plays football there at OU, and so she's out of that. Um, what, what about other things going on that we need to be aware of as a church? You guys have other things happening? Any updates? Yes, sir. They're waiting, yeah. Sure, yeah. His name was Gary, you said? Okay. Yeah, so she's trying to get home tonight, Marcy's, all right. I just forgot it. Yeah, Miss Kathy, uh, many of you know and love, she is going back to Maryland to take care of her sister for four or five weeks. Uh, and then she's hoping to come back here and keep going. So, so continue to pray for Miss Kathy for sure. We miss her when she's not here. My wife, Amanda, she loves to talk to Miss Kathy. They have some conversations for sure, so. Let's do this as well. Uh, when, we, when we gather in times like this to have these prayer times, Kenny was reminding me this last week we were talking about um, it's good to have these times. It's also good to celebrate the ways that the Lord's been at work in our life, blessings that, that have come. Anybody have something they want to share just celebrating God's work in your life this last week, something that's happened that, yeah, Rich, go for it.
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're thankful for that. Yeah, and that's what I was about to say the same thing. We're glad Gayla's back. Look at this. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, that's a good that's a good reminder. Next Wednesday night, um, I hope you'll make a, a point to to be here and celebrate this. Next Wednesday night. Jim and the team, they're going to share about their time in the Middle East, uh, what, what happened there. And then also, next Wednesday night, we're going to have the worship leader from Multiply Church in Calgary. Uh, she's going to be here sharing with us about what's happening in Calgary and with Multiply Church and leading. And then on top of that, Jim's going to be sharing more about mission projects coming up in 2020 and, and the Lord's work there. So, Next Wednesday night is going to be a great mission celebration at Emmaus, so I hope you'll, hope you'll be a part of that. that, hearing about what the trip recently and then things that are coming up, so it'll be a, it'll be a good connection uh, next Wednesday night to do that. Anybody else? Things you just want to celebrate? Blessing? Yes, Becky. Yes, their grandson, Bodhi, made a profession of faith on, on Sunday morning. I should tell you about this story because it's worth, it's worth sharing. Um, so after the service on Sunday morning, share the gospel, you know, you're just Lord working somebody's life. And so after the service Sunday, Bodhi comes down front and usually he's coming down to get my mic pack from me to take it back up to his dad. So I said, Bodhi, do you need my mic pack? He said, no. He shook his head and then he just stood there. So I turned around and had conversations with probably four or five people. So 10 minutes later, I turn around, and Bodie is still standing right beside me. And I said, do you need something, buddy? He said, I want to do that. Like, what, what do you want to do? He said, I want to confess Jesus. I, I want to believe. I, I want to tell you that I believe in Jesus. And so, man, we went off to the side, and he prayed the most beautiful prayer of just trusting the Lord, praying for his forgiveness of sins, and trusting the Lord, and it was incredible. And then, usually when that happens on Sunday morning, someone has sent their child to me because they just want them to go and tell Pastor Owen and pray with Pastor Owen. And so, Bodie and I walked back up to Andy and Lynn. I said, hey guys, Bodie, Bodie prayed to, to trust Jesus. They had no idea about it. <laughs> so, I felt terrible because every other time I would have brought the parents into that prayer, into that conversation, they didn't know. He was just doing his thing. He was, uh, he was confessing Jesus as Lord, and he wanted to tell me about it. So uh, it was, man, that made my, that made my week. That was, that was so much fun. So. And the fact that the kid stood there for 10 minutes while I talked to other people and neglected him. He's trying to give his life to Jesus, and I'm trying to give him my mic pack. So uh, it was an awesome story. Man, makes me smile thinking about it. Yes, Sunday. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you for saying that. Yes, Sheree, go for it. All right. She made the 16 with her. Is that DJ or? No. Michael. Yeah. Very cool. Good to have you. So you got the got the sixteen year old. Yeah. We'll pray for you. Yeah, extra extra prayer, man. Extra prayer for you tonight. <laughs> I have a twelve year old who thinks she's sixteen, so yeah. Uh, yeah, four years. That's great. It's been a good four thank you all. Appreciate that. It's been a good four years. Yes, sir. Hey, that's great, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a good problem to have. Very cool. 
All right, let's pray. Let's pray together, celebrating those things. Father, it is good to come together as a church and celebrate your work. We come together acknowledging that our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in you uh, and, and what you do in our lives. And so we need that reminder. And, and we can do that individually. That happens behind closed doors. We know we can give you praise as we're heading out, going to work, or as we're laying down, getting ready for sleep. We can do that. But there's something powerful about when we do that together. When we come together and remember that we're, we're not alone, we're not in this by ourselves, God, and, and thank you for the gift of the church. God, we celebrate these things that have been shared about how you've been at work. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness and kindness to us, your presence with us in times of hurt and pain, when, when situations are going on that we're unsure of. And God, even, even tonight as we, as we look at these scriptures and think about these different uh, points of theology, the, the big idea just comes back around to the fact that our hope is in you, that we trust in you, that our confidence is not in ourselves, but our confidence and our hope is in Christ. And so as we sang about just a few minutes ago, God, that we need you. We thank you, Father, for the way that you stick with us, even when we act like we don't need you, God, that you continue to remain there. And so, Father, continue to shape us as a church and individually. And we give you praise for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to do a very quick overview, that way we stay on track. I want to do a quick overview of that part of beginning of Matthew 17. So if you'd like to open to Matthew 17, I want to do an overview of the transfiguration. Well, I mean overview I mean really fast. I've given you a full page of notes, the front page of that packet. As you look at it, the way it's stapled and put together, the front page is really study notes about this, what's called the transfiguration uh, story in the, in the Gospels. And so if you want some material or some bullet points, some things to look at, if you want to read this later, keep this as, as a reference, you can have that. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes on this. Um, and then we're going to circle back around to the question of Catholicism, being Protestant, being Baptist. What does that have to do with this passage? Why in the world would we talk about that today? All of those things. So we're going to make sure we give time for that uh, here, in, here in just a little bit. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And I'll probably just make some comments as I go. That may be the easiest way to do this. But verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So six days connects this story to what came before. It's also probably one of the first of many references in this passage connecting Jesus with Moses. Moses is six days on the mountain. Now, there's six days, and Jesus is going to go on the mountain. You're going to find a lot of these little connections between the Moses story and the Jesus story, and so it's probably a, a beginning of that. They go up on a high mountain. In Scripture, when God reveals himself, it's often on a mountain. You have these references to the mountain, and there's probably a little bit of a connection back to the Sermon on the Mount even at this point. Jesus has already gone up on a mountain to speak the word of the Lord. Now he's going to be on a mountain again, experiencing the revelation of God, God giving his word to him. And so you see that happening there in, in verse 1. He takes Peter, James, and John, kind of this inner circle of three. Interestingly, when Moses went up on the mountain in the Old Testament, he took three companions as well. And so it's another one of those little Moses-Jesus connections that happens. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light this word for transfigured famously is the same word that later on in english becomes the word metamorphosis this transformation this change now don't make the mistake of going from english and going back into greek and saying well it means like becoming like a butterfly no that's not how it works it's it was a word about something being transformed and as that Greek word made its way into English, it became the word metamorphosis. So this change, this transformation that happens in someone's life. And it says here that Jesus, his face shone like the sun. 
the Moses story. When Moses experienced the glory of God, remember when he came down off the mountain, he was lit up. Now, the difference there is Moses is shining because he's reflecting an experience of the glory of God. Jesus is shining through. His light, his shining is coming because of who he is. Moses' shining comes because of what he's experienced. He's experienced. He's like, it's the difference between the sun and the moon. Moses is the moon. He's reflecting the light. He's radiating because of the light. Jesus is like the sun. He's shining out the light because that's where the light comes from. That's the differences in, in the two. His clothes became white as light, this pure, this radiant idea. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Why do Moses and Elijah show up here? Almost certainly because from the Old Testament, the Jewish people had an expectation that at the end times, Elijah and Moses would show back up, would be active again. This was kind of this expectation. There's even uh, these ideas that Enoch, Elijah, and Moses were the three figures in the Old Testament who didn't experience death. Now you say, I'm sure I've read about Moses' death in the Old Testament. You have, but um, what's the word? Uh, kind of stories built up over time that Moses didn't actually die. So there was this ongoing thought among the Jewish people that Moses never truly experienced death. So you have two figures showing up here who have somehow escaped the power of death, and now they've come back, and they, Elijah and Moses showing up triggered for the people the end times have come. Something different is about to happen. Um, so they show up here in verse 3. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Again, Peter shows faith, he shows courage, and he shows some short-sighted stupidity. Um, it's just pretty consistent. Like, he's courageous, he's faithful, and yet he just continues to say things like, he's so close to getting it, but he just doesn't quite get it. This is kind of that ongoing, ongoing theme with, with Peter here. And Jesus' whole point in being here on the mountain is that a Moses and Elijah are great but we don't all live on the same plane. This is not three figures that are just the same. Jesus' superiority is being shown here. So we don't need three tents because we're not staying here anyway. We're not going to stay here on the mountain. This is just a short experience to show you something. So verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. In other words, Peter, <laughs> Moses and Elijah are great. I've prepared them for this moment, but this is my son. This is the one you're supposed to listen to. He is the one who's going to bring to fulfillment everything that has come, come before. This is the same experience that happened at Jesus' baptism when you have a voice from heaven speaking. And what does he say in the baptism? This is my beloved son. You've got the same idea happening. In the Old Testament, God's glory often appeared in a cloud. That was a consistent idea that, that God's glory, his Shekinah glory, was shown through the cloud, through the fire. So that's what's happening here. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That's a consistent response in Scripture to hearing God's voice. You see that multiple times. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, I know we don't often say this on Wednesday night. I'll, I'll sometimes say this on Sunday morning just to try to keep people keyed in and triggered. But if you are a Bible underliner, the second half of 17.8 is a huge theology statement. But they saw no one but Jesus only. So it's a way of saying, Moses and Elijah have prepared you for this time, but now my son has come. And you were waiting for the end times? Well, it's come, and it's coming through Jesus. He alone is the only one who's going to be able to fulfill all of God's plans. So it's not just a random statement. That is like core Matthew theology going on there at the end of verse 8. Verse 9, they don't stay on the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
not because he doesn't want people to know, because it's going to cause confusion until that time comes. And so the disciples ask him in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was actually speaking to them of John the Baptist. What's happening in those verses is the disciples, they're struggling with a timeline. They're thinking, okay, if this is the Messiah, if this is the one who's come at the end of times, why is he talking about suffering? Because if he's supposed to come to restore all things, there should be no more suffering. We should be finished with that. So what, what's going on here? And Jesus has to say, you know when Elijah came as John the Baptist? Remember what happened to him? He suffered and died. Guess what's going to happen to the Messiah? He also is going to suffer and die, but that's not going to destroy God's plan. This is all part of what God's plan is going to be about. There's also a really important lesson here about Jesus takes up on them up on the mountain, shows them his glory, and then says, guess what, guys? You don't get to live on top of the mountain. Most of life is lived walking down through the valley, following him with your life. Uh, teenagers struggle with this, except all of us as adults struggle with this as well. It's a temptation that we want to live our lives on a spiritual mountain, like at this high point. Guess what? Most of life is not lived at that point. <laughs> Most of life is lived trying to wake up and go to work with a good attitude and honor the Lord and come home and invest in your family and be patient with the people around you and to be thankful for the things that God has given you. And it's, it's lived not on this mountain experience. God gives us those experiences not to stay there but to sustain us as we live life, as we follow after Jesus. And so don't blame the teenagers and don't blame Peter because that's true for every one of us. Like, why don't I always feel during the week like I feel on Sunday morning when we're worshiping together? Because that's not how we live our full, we live our lives in worship, but not necessarily in that setting or in those circumstances. Most of life is it's pretty hard. It's putting one foot in front of the other, continuing to trust the Lord and not be afraid. That's the kind of life that God's called us to live. And you see that showing up in verse 14. Verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Verse 16, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If you remember from the Old Testament story, when Moses came down from the mountain, the people, what were they doing? They were worshiping a golden calf. They were living in idolatry. They were struggling with faith. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he encounters a lack of faith among the, among the disciples. They're struggling. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples rejoiced at this good news. No, no. <laughs> And they were greatly distressed. He just told them he was going to die and then rise again, but all they could hear is die. And they totally checked out. That's why you give the good news before the bad news, because they heard the bad news and missed the good news. Um, they just completely are overwhelmed. So the transfiguration story in Scripture, it's a picture of Christ's coming glory, and it's a reminder that suffering comes before glory. What, what do we have promise for us? What is our hope? It is the glory that's found in Jesus. That is our hope. But guess what? The path to get there is often a long, hard path. It's often a path of suffering. And what do we struggle with? We struggle with lack of faith and we struggle with fear. We struggle with lack of faith and we struggle with fear. And Jesus says, stay focused on me. Remember who I am. Remember what I've come to do. 
And this path of suffering will lead to glory. Don't worry, it's going to go there. And so that's the way that the transfiguration story is, is meant to work in Scripture. It gives us hope. It gives us confidence about the coming glory, even when we suffer, even when we struggle right, right now. Okay, so let's back up from that for a minute. Earlier, back in chapter 16, leading into chapter 17. So, so back in chapter 16, in verse 15. So back in chapter 16, in verse 15, Jesus is having this exchange with his disciples, kind of preparing them for what is to come. Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those are core verses for understanding the way Matthew's gospel works. But here's the interesting thing. The way we understand those verses is so different depending on if you've come from a Catholic background or you've come from a non-Catholic background. And, and here's what I mean by that. Is Peter there a foundational apostle for the way the church will function as those who will confess Christ, or is Peter in some way the first pope? And those who come after him as his successor will continue to have a special authority and power over the church coming in a line following Peter. That brings us to the fact that tomorrow is Halloween. Except it's not just Halloween. <laughs> tomorrow is also Reformation Day. Uh, if you don't know this little bit of history, the Reformation refers to something that happened on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther famously nails a piece of paper to the, uh, the door there in Wittenberg with the 95 theses on there of his declaration of what he believes to be true about God's work in the world and, 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 and how God deals with people. He's not the first one to do this, but he sets off this firestorm and really changes the, the direction. When you hear the word Protestant, Sometimes we throw that word Protestant around. It comes from the word protest, and it's a protest against how the church was functioning, how things were happening in the Catholic church, in the established church. So I thought because we did Matthew 16, and because tomorrow is Halloween, tonight would be an interesting time to talk about some of the differences between Catholic belief and Baptist or Protestant belief. Now, we have 20 four minutes uh, to do this, and we're not going to do this in 24 minutes, so I've given you a lot of, a lot of material here to look at on, our, uh, on, on these handouts. There's many questions we could ask. I want to get us started on this discussion tonight, maybe give you a little bit of direction for how you can think about this, and then this gives you some more information to look at. We can continue to have conversations about this, but I'm not going to read three pages worth of material to you. This is a gift to you to continue to go study, and we'll continue to study together. Here's what I do want to ask. Here's what I do want to ask. How many of you, how many of you grew up in a Catholic home? So you grew up in, in a Catholic background. Okay, I didn't figure that would put very many of us in this room, so four or five make the, uh, uh, make the cut here. I was born in Okeene, Oklahoma, so... Very few of you have ever been to, uh, been to Okeene. Uh, it's a pretty small town in, in Oklahoma. But Okeene, surprisingly for Oklahoma, has a fairly significant Catholic population in, in Okeene because of kind of where it's located and the people that came and, and settled in that area. And so my mom and dad, as young parents, first-time parents, my dad was a coach there, and they taught there at Okeene, one of the most influential people in their life was the local priest there in, in Okeen. As a young couple just trying to make their way, figuring out what to do with a, a first child, that local priest made a huge impact in, in my mom and dad's life. Now, my mom grew up Baptist. My dad grew up Methodist. They've, 
ever since they've been married, been a part of Baptist churches. My dad's a Baptist deacon, but they had that experience there in Okeen that was really, really formative to them. Amanda and I, when we got married and left Oklahoma, we went to New Orleans. New Orleans is a highly, highly Catholic city. Um, the experiences we had there. We leave New Orleans. Surely you can't go to a more Catholic place than New Orleans, except we moved an hour east of New Orleans to a place called Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Everything south of I-10 in Mississippi is not really Mississippi. It's just New Orleans East. And so uh, it, Bay St. Louis was a prominent Catholic community on the Mississippi, Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, we, our kids love to go to the local Catholic church fall carnival because it was massive and it was sponsored by Bud Light. Um, and so they had an incredible carnival at the, at the local Catholic church there in, in Bay St. Louis. And so we, we would go there. Now, I will tell you that, ministering in a place like, like Bay St. Louis, ministering there, we had a lot of people who would come to our Baptist church because they were desperate for study of Scripture. They just wanted to open the Bible and read the Bible, and that became, became an inroad for people to come to, they would show up at the women's Bible study during the week because they wanted to study scripture. They would come on Sunday morning because we used the Bible. Those type of things really, really shaped the way I understood that relationship. Here's the other story I would tell you about that. Just before we left, uh, Bay St. Louis to come here to, to Mississippi, so just over four years ago. The last person I had the chance to baptize in that church was a man about my age, and his family was a prominent Catholic family in town. His dad was a local, uh, was involved in politics in the area, and if you know of anything coming from a Catholic family background in a small town like that, the courage that it took for this guy to profess his faith in Christ and to be baptized in the Baptist church was, was incredible because you're putting family relationships on the line at this point. You're putting your business and integrity in the community on the line at this point. But he really had come to believe this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, and I need to show that through baptism, through immersion and baptism to say, this is what God has done in my life, and that's okay if my parents don't agree with it. That's okay if it's going to hurt me in the community. I need to do this. And, and I have very rarely been that humbled baptizing someone because of knowing what he had on the line when he was there. Now, Farshid could tell much, much better stories about baptizing people who have a lot on the line because Farshid baptizes people who have their life on the line. But uh, that idea of they, he wanted people to know I'm following Christ. I believe that my hope is in Jesus. It's not in the Catholic Church. It's not in that, um, in, in that background that I had. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between this. On your sheet there, if you just flip over that front page and you're looking at the back, a couple of caveats and, and reminders up front. Number one, beware generalizations, especially about someone's salvation. Uh, phrases like all Catholics are going to hell are no better than all Baptists are going to heaven, okay? So uh, your, your trip to heaven is not in any way connected to you being a Baptist, and your trip to hell is not connected to you being a Catholic, okay? And those statements are not helpful. They're not helpful for conversation, they're not helpful for relationships, and they're definitely not helpful for sharing the gospel. And so we just have to be so careful we're not making those type of blanket statements because we know it's about what's happening in somebody's heart. It's about the relationship with the Lord, not making a statement about someone's background or, or their connection. Because uh, Lord knows we've got plenty of struggles as Baptists to be talking about, about, uh, about another group like that. So number two, Luther, Martin Luther, and a lot of the other reformers, they did a lot of incredible things and have a lot of good characteristics, but they also have a lot of bad characteristics too when you begin to read about them and some of the things they went through. So so let's not come across celebrating Martin Luther as this incredible person and then putting down every Catholic person we know because that also is not a useful way to have this type of conversation. Number three, when we talk about Protestant churches, um, we're a diverse group. Like, there are a lot of different beliefs. Um, Catholic church has been known as saying, well, this is what we believe but even in the Catholic Church now in the 21st century, you're starting to feel some tension about the desire for more diversity or being 
pushing back on some of the dogmas and the doctrines that have been there. And so you even feel a little bit that happening in the Catholic Church. Also, um, my next point didn't get filled out completely, but uh, Catholic, small C Catholic, is not the same as capital C Catholic. The word Catholic just has this idea of universal, whole. Hear me out here. We are all part of a Catholic church, a whole church, because our hope is in Jesus. So there's one church. Theologically, from the New Testament perspective, there is one church, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when you capitalize that C and you start talking about the Roman Catholic Church and all that's tied into that, yeah, that is, that is distinct. But let's remember that in Christ, universally, there's a Catholic Church. And I meant to say, where my little asterisk ran out there, see the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> so this long-term declaration that Christians have made together of being a part of one holy Catholic Church, that's not talking about Roman Catholic. That's talking about all of us are together in Christ as part of the church. He's our hope. Um, so I want to make those statements from, from the beginning. Also, remember, we have a lot of similarities uh, with, with Catholics between Protestants. There's, there's a lot of points of connection. Similar ideas about the Trinity, similar ideas about Jesus. We connect well with Catholics on a lot of social issues about care for the poor, defense of marriage, resistance to abortion. There's a lot of points of connection there that are made. And frankly, some of their challenges are our challenges, too. Some of the things that have, uh, we've read reports and from the Catholic Church about issues of sex abuse. Well, guess what? Those reports have come right back on top of us as, as Southern Baptists and, and what that looks like. And so some of those challenges uh, remain the same. So there, there are points of connection. If you're looking for conversation connections with someone from a Catholic background, man, they are out there. Uh, and there are ways to begin that conversation. But there are a lot of differences as well and key differences and, and things we want to make sure. Now remember, 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 remember. We're talking about broad brush differences. We're talking about very general differences. When we have a conversation with somebody, we always want to get down the individual level and find out. Because, you know, somebody can have a conversation and say, well, that's what Baptists believe. And you're like, whoa, time out. I'm a Baptist, but I've never heard that before about, you know. So when we say this is what Catholics believe, it, it is unique because there's so much authority given in the church to proclaim the doctrine. And so you can say pretty forthright, this is what Catholics believe about someone, but you still want to get down in the individual level and talk to people about what they believe individually. I tried this last week to reach out to a uh, Catholic priest to go through this material with him to make sure I was presenting this well. I don't think Reformation Week is a good week for a Baptist pastor to send a Catholic priest uh, an email. I didn't get any replies to my email, so either my emails went to their spam folder or they said thanks but no thanks. I tried to word it like, I just want to, yeah, so my luck, I'll get November 1st, I'll get a reply to my email like, hey, I want to talk to you about this. So, okay, let's talk about some of these differences. Number one is the issue of authority, what declares something to be true, the issue of the authority. For a Catholic person, authority is wrapped up in Scripture, yes, but even Scripture there is, is different in the sense that it's going to contain different books of the Bible that aren't going to be a part of the 66 books uh, that, that we acknowledge as Scripture. Scripture and tradition and when I mean tradition, I mean church dogma or church doctrine that's been given by the Pope or given by other leaders in the Catholic Church. When you see CCC on your paper multiple times, that is Catechism of the Catholic Church. CCC, now there's another CCC related to Catholic life, but, but CCC here means Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I just copy and paste it directly out of that. So this is wording from the Vatican website about these type of, these type of ideas. So it's not like Owen's trying to spin the language here. Um, both scripture, CCC paragraph 82, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Where we would say it's scripture above all. Scripture is the truth of God. That's how we understand the word of God. And so the idea that you would put uh, tradition, teaching that might be given by the Pope or given by bishops up there at the same level is a dangerous idea because you've moved quickly from word of God to interpretation given by man. 
and, and 2 Peter 1 and other verses that I've listed there say we have to determine what's our authority. Really, at the end of the day, we have to determine what is our authority for life and practice. Is it the word of God or is it the word of God plus dot, dot, dot? We would want to say, no, it's the word of God, that that is our authority for understanding life and belief and practice. The second key difference is related to the concept of sin. Uh, in, in Catholic teaching, there are two distinct types of sin. There's mortal sin, and there's what's called venial sin. Uh, mortal sin, even for someone who is considered to be in Christ, if you commit a mortal sin, and, and I want to be careful how I say this, but this is pretty straightforward, you lose your relationship with God because of that mortal sin. Your relationship with God is cut off. And you might say, well, hey, what are those mortal sins? I, um, I'm giving you a website you can go to and kind of get an explanation and look at them. Let me just say quickly, you and I have committed a mortal sin recently based on, uh, based on this, li- uh, this list. I mean, it, it's a pretty intense list here. Of, so there are some sins that can cut you off from God after being considered a person of God. And then there are other venial sins that are smaller that you can deal with in, in other ways. And we'll talk here in a second about how you deal with mortal sins. But there are two distinct types of sins in, in the Catholic Church. We would say, for all of sin, it falls short of the glory of God. Sin cuts you off from relationship with God, and the only way you deal with that is through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Um, that there's not these two categories. The, the issue of Mary can, can sometimes be a distraction, but it's also a clarifying point of the difference between Catholic uh, doctrine and, and Protestant way of understanding. In Catholic doctrine, Mary was preserved from original sin. She was pure from sin throughout life, including never having sexual relations um, at any time in her life. And she receives now the prayer of, of people. From the Protestant view, from our view of Scripture, Mary was a godly woman, used powerfully by God. She's an example of faith, humility, and discipleship, but she doesn't exist in a distinct, eternal, uh, heavenly mother sort of, sort of way. Uh, she was used by God, but, but not in a way that continues to have significance for our relationship or, or prayers to God. So that's a distinct difference between, uh, between the two groups. Key, number four, if you go to that next page, this is probably the central difference and the one that makes the most impact on all the other doctrines, and it's the word justification. I know it's a big word, but it has to do with how can I as a sinner be made right with God who is perfect and holy. Hear me out, because this matters for conversations with someone from a Catholic background, someone from a Mormon background, someone from a Jewish background, Church of Christ, but you just name the background, this point matters here. Two groups can use the same word and move, mean different things by it. <laughs> so you always have to ask clarifying questions because if you ask someone from a Catholic background, do you believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? The immediate answer is absolutely I believe that. Yeah, yes, I believe that. But what is meant by grace and meant by faith in those two statements are different, depending on, on the background that you're, that you're coming from. In Catholic understanding of justification, they affirm salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. But this grace is, and I use this word carefully, but it's infused, it comes into our life through participating in these sacraments, beginning at baptism, and then continuing throughout life. If you look there at CCC 2010, 2010, that's kind of point two down there. Look at this one with me. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Now, we're like, okay, I, I think I'm, there's a couple of words in there that scare me, like beginning and initial, but yeah, unmerited grace, we, we understand that. But then the next phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. 
Now we've entered into a different category uh, at this point. And this is probably the core difference between our understanding of God's grace and salvation and someone from a Catholic background about this idea of to what degree throughout my life do I have to continue to merit and attain the grace of God? Is this an ongoing attainment? And, and I've looked at this and looked at this and studied it, and, and I would want a Catholic person to speak for themselves, but I don't know how you get around the answer other than, yeah, in the Catholic teaching, you just have to continue to merit that grace. You have to continue to attain it. You have to continue to, to pursue it. Where we would say, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And man, the word peace is good news in Romans 5.1. That, that our peace, our hope, is not in ourselves and what we merit and attain, but it's, it's our faith in Christ. It's what he's done for us. And the result of that is not that we live however we want. The result of that is, is we continue to grow in that grace, but we're not continually having to attain it and attain it and being unsure of, of where we stand. We stand in Christ. We stand nowhere else. And then we grow in that. And so... Three key questions to ask on this when you're talking with someone. Is it faith alone or is it faith plus? Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Faith, Faith alone or not. Is grace infused and merited throughout life or is it declared into your life? Is is it, sometimes in Protestant world we use the word imputed. Is it put into your life? You have the grace of God and you experience that throughout life, but you don't have to continue to merit it and gain it throughout, throughout life. Is grace, is your future a possibility of you might make it? Or is it a guarantee because of your hope in Christ? I'd like to again speak directly to someone from a Catholic background, but man, you almost seem like you get into and I'd be very careful about this in conversation, but you almost get into uh, a, a Muslim idea of just being so uncertain about your eternal future. Like, have I done enough? Where is my standing with God? Uh, in Islam, there's a lot of uncertainty about, I, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't, I don't know. I don't know how you have peace in, in that situation. I don't, I don't know where your hope is in that situation, and so... Again, these conversations are hard in person, but I really do think it comes down to those particular questions. Where is my hope? Where is my peace? Where is my foundation? The sacraments, the ways that you gain this grace, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, we call the Lord's Supper, confession, anointing of the sick, sometimes called last rites, holy orders if you become a deacon or a priest, matrimony if you're married in not just married, but married in the Catholic Church, all these things are a means of of achieving this grace or meriting this. Turn over to the back page. I want to point out one in particular. It's at the top of that back page on the back, and it's the idea of confession. So remember earlier we talked about mortal sin, a sin that would cut you off from, from a relationship with God? Confession or penance is the primary way that relationship is restored. Um, so if you've committed a mortal sin, you can't go and take the Eucharist or you can't go and take the Lord's Supper. You go to penance, I mean, you go to confession, you participate in these acts of penance, and then hopefully your relationship with God is restored so you can continue to live in that. And so confession works in, in that way in the Catholic Church. All this leads to that idea of, I wonder what happens after death. Well, there's even beyond death this idea of purgatory. Um, if you look under purgatory there, CCC 1030, um, Catechism 1030, all who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. There's just nothing like that you find in Scripture. You, you don't, the only reason you need that is if your salvation, your forgiveness, your purification was not fully accomplished by Christ on, on the cross. And so, again, you have this, this open-ended nature to, to the life here. of some, And on top of that, even Acts now, 
are done for those who have died in order to get them through purgatory and on into the blessed glory. And again, you just don't find that type of idea in, in Scripture. So what do we do with this? What, 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 what would I want you to take away from this? Well, we always want to begin with personal introspection. What do I need to learn before I point the finger at anybody? Like, where is my hope? You know, what am, what am I doing to grow in my understanding of, of God's work in my life? Also, before we as Baptists speak poorly of another group, Lord knows we have plenty of work to do internally, you know, for, for ourselves. And so we want to look introspectively. Number two, just continue to learn. Uh, if there is one admonition I give you from tonight, it's that Berean statement from Acts 17, 11, where Paul came along and preached to the Bereans, and they said, ah, Good try to sermon, Paul. We're going to go back and check that uh, against Scripture to make sure that's actually the, the case. Just continuing to evaluate, continuing to learn. Um, learn from church history, learn from theology. And man, be very discerning of anything that requires extra work, being part of the so-called true church, having to keep certain laws or do something extra to earn the salvation of God. Uh, that, that's when you start getting off the path. That, that's what uh, Paul calls, even if the angel comes and gives you another gospel, and it's not the gospel that's been preached by Jesus, don't have anything to do with it, uh, because it's not the true gospel. There's, there's no good news there, um, so, so don't go that way. Then, we want to do the hard work. <laughs> For some of you, I know this means family, which makes it ten times as hard or it's friends, or it's people in your neighborhood. These type of conversations, how do we speak about Jesus? How do we speak about the gospel in these ways? Um, remember to speak with and to others, not about them, having those conversations. Be careful about sweeping generalizations. Don't speak badly of people. Really, see is probably the, the big point there. When speaking with others, ask clarifying questions. We're trying to get to the point of what do you mean by grace? What do you mean by faith? What do you, we're trying to get to those clarifying questions about what, what we believe. So you find the point of agreement. And, and then don't get too sidetracked by side issues. Uh, you know, you get into a discussion with somebody and they start chasing a rabbit and you start chasing a rabbit and pretty soon you've lost the core of the conversation. I think in these conversations, you're focused on what's your authority for what you believe. So you, you, you focus on the authority question you focus on the justification question, how are we made right with God, and then you focus on the future hope question. Where, where, is, where is my hope? Because the brutal reality, and I say brutal, that, I may take back that word, but the brutal reality of some of this is, is in Catholic teaching, if you die in mortal sin, there's no hope. And, and you find yourself, man, am I okay right now? Am I right with God or am I not? question is, is my faith in Jesus? <laughs> Not have I attained it, but, but have I looked to him for hope? Have I looked to him for salvation? So, all right, let's pray, and we'll, we'll go. Father, I think after all this study and, and thinking about this the past few days, I come back around, God, to what it means that Jesus has done for us, that our hope is not in ourselves, our hope is not in what we merit, our hope is not in our denomination or our family background. Our hope is in Christ, and the result of that is peace and joy that goes beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And God, we want to live that out, we want to share that with others. God, I pray for for people in here who, who are having these conversations, God, give them, give them guidance and wisdom and love as they have these conversations. And God, I pray for us as a church that we would stand strong in your word and that we would continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus with everything that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you.